Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hi. This month, we're interviewing Rabbi Minna Bromberg about Fat Torah and their work in fat activism and ending weight stigma in the Jewish community. And for our second segment, we're talking about fake food, by which we mean par of foods like fake meat, fake cheese, fake ice cream, inspired in part by the passing of David Mintz, the founder of Tofuti. All right, Mimi, do you want to take it away for our first segment? Yeah, so we are joined by Rabbi Dr. Minna Bromberg. She's a rabbi, musician, and activist based in Jerusalem and the founder of Fat Torah. Um, Fat Torah is dedicated to ending weight stigma in Jewish communal life, supporting the spiritual and religious needs of those engaged in fat activism, and working with Jewish tradition to foster, quote, body liberation for people of all sizes. And Minna, we're really happy to have you here. I, I wonder if we could start um, by just talking about what the name Fat Torah means in my head, I went a lot of different places in my head, and I, I want to hear sort of where it came from and what it means to you. Well, I'm glad you went a lot of different places, because I think part of what I love about the name is it's multivalence and, uh, you know, that it could be all kinds of things. It started off really as a way for me to kind of have an umbrella under which to write um, Divrei Torah, interpretive uh, teachings that incorporated the body liberation work that I'd been doing since the early 1990s. Um, and so I started writing some of those Divrei Torah right after I was ordained in 2010. And it was real sort of coming together of decades in fat activism with um, my own sense of the Torah that I wanted to teach. And, you know, definitely this sense that, you know, obviously there is weight stigma in in Judaism and in our Jewish communal lives, because, you know, we're part of the world, um, <laughs> part of a world full of weight stigma, but um, but also a real sense that the tradition could be deployed in ways that were liberatory. Wonderful. And I know that um, one of the taglines of Fat Torah talks about moving from narrowness to liberation or freedom. And obviously we're entering the Passover season. Um, so, I'm wondering if you can talk about how you see that transition or journey and, and how you see it play out both like for individuals in the Jewish community, but also where do we want to be as a community thinking about what liberation can look like for all bodies? Yeah, I mean, it certainly comes out of my own lived experience of the decision to stop dieting as a 16-year-old after I had been dieting since I was seven. And I think that, you know, pretty shortly thereafter, I really came to have a sense of that choice as my own, really my own Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, my own coming out of a place of narrowness. And I think part of what was powerful to me about that as a as a myth and as a metaphor was how much you know, how uncharted the path was, that when you make a choice like that, which at the time was really not something that any of my peers or anyone that I was in community with at the time was talking about. And I think any time that you're breaking a, a cultural norm, you know, there aren't, it has this feeling of the phrase that, you know, would often repeat 
itself in my head was that on the other side of the wall, there is no wall, right? That like everything mm -hmm. just sort of falls apart behind you as you leave. And, um, and it was just so powerful for me. And then, you know, for basically, you know, every Pesach after that, like I would sit at the Seder and I remember hearing people, you know, often talk about, well, you know, how do we really experience this ourselves? Because aren't we the ones with privilege? And who are the people who are enslaved who we want to be freeing today? And I would just sort of sit there like, I don't understand this. Like, I actually feel like I have a lived experience of moving from stuckness and narrowness into a place of openness and freedom. And I and I don't know that I talked about it very frequently because, you know, even in small communal settings, it can feel, you know, like a huge thing to come out about as someone who's anti-diet and, and a fat activist. So it wasn't something really that I spoke about a lot, but certainly in my own life, that's what it was. That's what it was about. And it's the kind of thing where like, I think this happens a lot with, with Torah, where like, once you hear it a particular way, you kind of can't unhear it. And you can't sort of necessarily remember what it was like to hear Yitziat Mitzrayim before I had that sense of it. Um, so that's how it arose in my personal life. And I think that, you know, in our in our communal lives, we really like because we have this narrative of reliving this journey from stuckness to freedom, that we have the option of really finding ways to experience that in our own bodies. I think that, you know, it's clear that that it's still very much a countercultural thing to do and um and that part of what I value about Jewishness and especially I would say Jewishness in the North American context is the way that it really is and can be a way to not not is necessarily, but can certainly be a way to speak truth to power. And, um, that was a hugely, um, yeah, just hugely powerful thing in my own life. And one that I, I guess I sort of got to a point where I wasn't willing to not share it with other people anymore. Um, and so really, um, when I started Fat Tour a year ago, just the sense of, no longer being willing to keep this to myself. Can you talk about the place in Jewish community where you feel like you see the need for this? Because I think um, I've been so thrilled to see fat activism and fat acceptance be just like such a burgeoning movement over the past few years. And it feels like something that's really kind of moving forward and exciting. But um it does feel to me both like something that the Jewish community needs and also that like, I guess maybe not unique to the Jewish community. It's going to be super hard to get the Jewish community to see why it's needed in the Jewish world. And I'm curious what your what your take on that is. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we want our communities, our synagogues and our schools and our summer camps to actually be places that include everyone, then we can't not look at weight stigma. Um, and part of that is because of accessibility issues that exist in the Jewish world, just like they do in most parts of the world for the largest among us, right? That there are actual physical accessibility issues. You know, I'm someone who's often invited to various congregations to, to teach, and I'm usually sort of lucky in the sense that I'm expected to be standing to teach, which is good because plenty of synagogues that I go to don't actually have seats that are comfortable for me. 
Um, and, um, you know, I, I th so on that end of the spectrum, literally, like we need to be able to give people places to sit if we want them to be able to be part of our communities. I think, um, and that's sort of the, the piece that should be the most visible, although I have to say that um, I don't generally feel like my need, you know, it's to, to come into a, to any space as a larger person has sort of this weird feeling of feeling simultaneously hyper visible and invisible all at the same time, because I feel like, you know, you couldn't look at my body and not notice that it's different than most of the bodies in the room. And at the same time, I have literally never been asked what my needs are. Never. Mm. And I mean, I'm someone who goes to a lot of different congregations. So this isn't, you know, pinning anything on any one congregation. I've never been asked what my needs are. When I come into a room that has a mix of seats that are not going to fit me and seats that will fit me, I have never had someone offer me a seat that will fit me when all of those seats are taken. Um, so I think on that end of the spectrum, the need is just like a straight up physical accessibility need. Um, I think that the larger issue that, that represents is that, you know, we want our communities to be places where people have a sense of belonging. We want them to be places where people can be their wholest, their most whole, their most vulnerable selves. Um, and to come to a place where I'm supposed to have a sense of belonging and immediately see that I literally do not fit um, flies in the face of that and makes, I, makes it hard to trust that belonging is actually the goal. But I think that in some ways, the physical accessibility needs of the largest among us are sort of the tip of the iceberg, right? Because what you don't see are the people who are dealing with disordered eating and who are going to mm -hmm. be, you know, triggered by the diet culture things that get said in congregational life. And I think especially, you know, the worst stories that I've heard since I've been doing this work have absolutely been about, you know, things that clergy say from the BEMA um, about people's bodies, about their own bodies, about their diet journeys, quote unquote, and like thinking that Rosh Hashanah is a great time to give a sermon that's all about their diet. Um, like no one wants to hear about your diet, Rabbi. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'm obviously not privy to those firsthand because when I'm on the Bema, that's not what I'm preaching. But I've been, you know, collecting stories this whole time about about that. And again, like, you know, if you look out, you know, if you're standing on the Bema looking out, you don't see who's you know, horribly disordered relationship with food, you've just re-triggered by talking about your diet journey. So I think there's actual harm being done in our communities um, that isn't being addressed. Um, and I think that, you know, part of what's powerful to me is that, like, this, the sense that we have of being places where everyone ought to belong, like, as a, the fact that we have that as a value means that we can activate that as a value. Amen, Sela, to everything that you said. Um, I also feel like I I think there's so there's such a weird emphasis on Jewish continuity in so many Jewish communities now, which is just like a kind of coded like pressure on single people, even like teenagers to get married and have children. And that often manifests itself in like a commentary on people's bodies and a kind of whole kind of 
genre of things that mostly women, but also men get told about like what is going to be desirable to other people and how like the most important thing is making yourself desirable to um, potential partners so that you can get married and have more Jews. Um, and those things seem to me very, they're so kind of deeply rooted in a lot of Jewish institutions that they they feel like the air we breathe. Like they don't, it would be, it's kind of impossible to imagine like what would Jewish summer camp be like if it wasn't at least on one level about like pushing Jews in subtle and extremely unsubtle ways towards marriage. And I mean, I have a lot of friends who went to camps where they were like explicitly told like marry Jews and have four or more children. <laughs> like that was the like <laughs> baseline thing. And it's like, well, if that's what you're being told from the time that you're 12, then you're from the time that you're 12, you're also having to think about like, what will make me attra sexually attractive to someone who I might want to marry. And there's just a lot of implicit messages that come along with that, uh, that I think like, it's just super hard to unravel that, even when you're aware of it. Oh, I mean, in, yeah, yeah, implicit and explicit messages. I mean, I've been, I've been also learning more, you know, people coming to me saying, please, 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 you know, have Fat Torah, you know, write something or do something about how this plays out in the world, in the part of the Orthodox world where shiduchim are still a thing, right? Where matchmaking is the way that people meet each other. And I feel like, wow, someone like, you know, Fat Torah of like our many, our agenda that will take me more than my lifetime to get through, like part of it are things that are genuinely not mine to write. Like someone needs to write that but I'm not enough like in that world. So I think it absolutely, you know, weight stigma absolutely plays out in both implicit and explicit ways. And in terms of like, how do we do it? Well, you know, thank God, you know, like Fat Tor is developing curricula and trainings on how to actually help people, you know, live from the inside out instead of, you know, judging everyone based on what their bodies look like. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that it really is, you know, does have that air we, air we breathe quality to it. And I think, um, you know, like one of my favorite little snippets that I have been, you know, collecting over the years was being at a kiddish table back when we actually, you know, like gathered in person and ate things together. Um, and hearing this, this guy who, you know, was in his sixties or whatever, say to another gentleman in his sixties, well, remember, you know what they say, you eat the protein and you leave the carbs for the goyim. And I was like, this is like some weird, like coming together of like borscht belt xenophobia with like weird diet culture bullshit. Also, like, and I when have Jews like, ever left the carbs to anyone else ever? <laughs> like that's also not exactly. part of our history. Exactly. I was like, I don't think anyone says that actually. No, 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 no one says that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it's pervasive. And, you know, the only good thing about it being pervasive is that there are countless points of intervention possible. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that, because you have you've referenced a couple of times sort of this this, this sort of sweeping agenda that you'd you'd love to get to. Right. And, and you're one person and it's not a huge organization. Um, and so just thinking about what what 
in your uh, sort of dream scope for the organization, um, what are things that are not currently active projects that you would just love to get to because you think they are um, such important ways to address such important entry points into this problem in the Jewish community? Yeah, I mean, the current priority is to look at and connect with congregations and communities that are already having conversations about inclusivity around race and around disability and around queerness and make sure that they also start including weight stigma on their inclusivity agenda. So that's sort of like priority number one, just strategically. That's the first thing that we're working on right now. The book that I'm working on right now is addressing that. Um, the other things that are like, you know, the next books or the next whatever, um, I feel like in the world of body positivity and in the world of health at every size, there are a lot of doctors and therapists and dietitians, thank God, who are actually working in the field in a weight neutral way. Um, but they are doing that often in ways that, to my mind, incorporate spiritual care. Um, and those folks are generally not trained in spiritual care. Um, in other words, they're dealing with their patients and their clients around questions of human worth. And human worth is a theological question. It's not only a theological question, but it's certainly a question that, you know, that our tradition has a lot to say about and a lot to teach about. So that's kind of, you know, <laughs> after we get weight stigma on the inclusivity agenda of every congregation and school and summer camp in the Jewish community, then we're going to move on to supporting people who are already doing the work of combating weight stigma um, to have some support around some of these larger questions of ultimate concern, as we would say, in, uh, <clears throat> in the world of theology. Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of it for me is also listening to what the other needs are that might not be directly involved in my own positionality, right? So um, I think that there are, think, you know, ways that weight stigma intersects with disability in ways that, that weight stigma certainly intersects with race and racism um, that are, you know, voices that I want to foster in, in our communities to really see how we can, you know, be supportive and empowering there. Those are some of our plans. Big work to, to do, for sure. I, you know, I, I, this isn't news, but it just strikes me the, the idea that body liberation is tied up with the liberation of people of all sizes, all abilities, also trans rights, LGBTQ rights. It's, you know, there's just so much inclusivity work that needs to happen in our communities in order to get people into our communities to see whether there's a chair that fits them or not. Um, just a lot, a lot of work to do there. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the good news is that we're also learning, you know, learning the role of joy and celebration. You know, you started off asking, you know, what Fat Torah meant. And I think that there's absolutely one of the meanings for me is a Torah that is fat. In other words, a Torah that enjoys its own abundance and um, has a sense of its own plenty and its own openness and availability and spreads around a lot. Um, so I think absolutely that um, there's no shortage of work to be done, but it feels, you know, you, you were saying Tamar that, you know, that there's, that it feels like 
these are my words, not yours, that, you know, that there's sort of this bubbling up conversation in the last couple of years, you know, the the fat liberation movement in the U.S. has been around for 50 years in an organizational form. Um, and so it's been really lovely as someone who's been involved in it for 30 years to feel like you're absolutely right, that there is a conversation that people in a broader context are willing to have now that they, they, they haven't necessarily been willing to have in the 30 years that I've been involved. And that's that's very exciting. Are you seeing any organizations that you think are starting to do the work that you're looking for. I'm thinking particularly about a summer camp that I know like has a very strong no body talk policy, which I think is, I guess like I would be very <laughs> skeptical about to the degree to which the, it is actually enforced, but I think it's a cool idea. And I think that I am starting to see little kind of rays of light around things like that. And I'm curious if you have any that you want to call out. Yeah, I think the I think the summer camp that you know of is the same summer camp that I know of. I don't know of others. I think there's, you know, some interesting programming that's starting to happen in an entrepreneurial way around Jewishness and fatness, which is exciting. Um, and um, and, you know, certainly Fat Torah is, you know, looking to connect with any other folks who are doing that work and wanting to join us in that work. Yeah, I mean, I think No Body Talk is a is an interesting starting place. I would certainly, you know, personally prefer training around body talk that's weight neutral and weight inclusive, because um, I think that bodies are wonderful things to talk about um, when we can do it in ways that are liberatory and not oppressive. Um which is, you know, hopefully maybe a next step in that direction. But yeah, I mean, I've been very pleased with, there's some interesting work going on around um, Jews and eating disorders. Shira Rose has done good work around Jews and eating disorders. Um, and I think, you know, there are little pieces of it that you find. There's a new, you know, like, so um, there is a field of fat studies and the fat studies journal this spring is, um, or this year is coming out with its first special issue on Jews and fatness. So, um, so in the academic world, there's certainly starting to be places of, um, you know, including Jewishness in our conversations about fatness and vice versa. Um, and my mom and I have a piece hopefully coming out in that journal. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So, yeah, I think there's really exciting things happening. I love that you just brought your mom in because I do think that um, for a lot of us, there's something about like intergenerational trauma or passed on oppression. Um, and it gets a lot of it gets put on Jewish moms. Just the idea of like bringing along multiple generations into this liberation is really important. Yeah, I mean, the piece that we're working on is is exactly about this, is about, you know, the way that diet culture was part of our families assimilating into Americanness, the way that, that Jewish women in particular who wanted to be American were, um, you know, where diet culture really became a part of that. Um, and I think that certainly the, there, there are certainly conversations around fat liberation here in Israel, um, and absolutely there are ways that, you know, multi-generational post-trauma and post-trauma from the Holocaust plays into diet culture and to fat oppression um, in ways that are sort of more prominently seen here in Israel, I would say, just because there's a higher concentration of 
survivors and family of survivors, families of survivors. But absolutely, I think the way that this gets played out multi-generationally is, uh, you know, another place of pain for very, very many people um, and hopefully also an opportunity for healing. I know you've already talked about how your kind of journey involved kind of seeing your yourself as going through Yitziat Mitzrayim. And I'm wondering if you have any specific Torah or ideas that you want people to take into into Pesach this year as we're starting to move into a place of thinking quite a lot about food, <laughs> perhaps even more than usual. Right. Well, one piece is um, has to do with actually something. I'll share one thing troubling that I've seen and then one thing that's more hopeful. So the troubling piece that I've seen is um, people using fatness as a metaphor for chametz. Or um, so, you know, people talking about, you know, that what the thing that we're refraining from is somehow bloatedness or, you know, a lot of metaphors that are about sort of fatness in the body. Um, so that's troubling and something we can just not do. So don't use my body as a metaphor. Thank you. Um, that's the that's the don't do. And I think, you know, this even just when we think about, you know, sitting at a Seder, right, that there's something about the comfort of the body while we're eating that um, that I think we don't emphasize enough. It's a little tricky. You know, we'll see how it plays out this year with with COVID restrictions. But, you know, certainly I think, you know, for Pesach, there's this sense that on the one hand, we're supposed to be reclining, but often we're like sitting all squished together on little chairs. Um, So I think that um, it would be great if we, you know, sort of took more seriously the the comfort of the body while we're eating and, you know, actually just letting ourselves enjoy our food. I think that, you know, a Seder that didn't have any comments about um, what we were, you know, a negative, a Seder that didn't have any moralizing around eating would be like such a wonderfully free thing. And certainly something that people can practice, like just refrain from saying bad things about yourself and your eating, hmm. let alone saying things about other people's eating yeah right yeah that is so so important and for many of us still quite challenging so uh, absolutely yeah thank you so so much much for uh chatting with us today and i am personally so excited (laughs) about the work that you're doing and uh yeah i'm really excited to see where fat torah goes so thank you thank you i'm so so glad to have been able to be with you and um we've got a great you know we've got a great online community and various teachings that we're doing and always love to hear from people thank you Um, so please do you know find us and connect we'll include the links um to the website and the online community in our show notes fantastic thank you thank you so much minna take care So for our second segment, we are talking about fake food. Um, And we started talking about this because um, recently David Mintz, (laughs) who uh, brought the world to foodie, among many other things, died. And it kind of started a conversation about the way that par of foods have changed throughout our lives in the Jewish community. And I... So I thought this would be fun to talk about because I feel like there has been such a big change that I really am just interested in like how it happened and why it happened 
now and I, I have some ideas, but I wanted to talk it through with both of you. So before we like really dig into like what the like landscape of fake products is right now, let us spend a few moments discussing the fake dairy and fake meat products of our childhoods. Did you guys have any favorites or things that you really hated from when you were young? Well, my family never kept par of ice cream on hand. So my father has like a sort of philosophical opposition to fake ice cream. He's like, if you're going to have ice cream, wait till you're milkic and have ice cream. Um, and like was not into it. Like we would have maybe sorbet in the house or things that were not a substitute item. Um, but we didn't have it. So for me, tofuti cuties, which are the little ice cream sandwiches, um, you know, that's like vanilla ice cream, chocolate, chocolate sandwich cookie on either side. That was in other people's house treat. Um, and I was always down for a cutie at somebody else's house, but we never had it. We were also not like a veggie burger family. Um, we didn't have fake meat around. And for a while, I was very disdainful of fake foods. I'm like, I could go for one of those veggie burgers that is like clearly composed of black beans and is an entirely different thing than attempting to be beef. So for a while, I just it was not part of my regular diet. Um, I think to the extent that things have changed it's been driven less by kosher consumers than by the like boom in lots of people's specific dietary needs, driving tons of non-dairy or non-meat options. But, yes, I want to get um, to that. But yeah. first, I want to close the loop yeah. on our, our childhood faves or not faves. So Mimi. Yeah, Mimi, were, were cuties a thing in your house? Cuties were not a huge thing in my house. I think similar to you, Zahava, they were in other people's house thing, which I just love a good tofuti cutie. They're so also just the name tofuti cutie. It's really fun. <laughs> Sounds better than like non-dairy ice cream. <laughs> the one fake meat product that I didn't grow up with as a child, but probably as a teenager and now is certainly a staple of my life. Um, Morningstar Farms has these breakfast sausages, not the links, but the sausage patties. Those are, man, they are so salty and delicious. And whenever I haven't figured out a protein for my son's meals, just pop one of those in the microwave for a minute. And yeah, I feel I feel OK giving him one of those every couple of days or something. Those are like a stealth kosher thing, though, because you got to be careful. A lot of them are legit dairy. And you really? just don't. Yeah. Like the chicken See, nuggets, I think, are. Da- yes. Like, you don't expect the fake chicken nuggets to be dairy like you expect them to be part of mm-hmm. I totally trafed a pot with those once <laughs> I think it's so funny that we're it's like we're like of course the people who would make the fake chicken would know we don't want it to be milk and it's like <laughs> I don't I don't know if that was actually part of the calculus here um so when I was growing up tofuti was not ever in our house what the the brand that we had was called mocha mix and Mocha Mix is just like an ice, like a par of ice cream brand. Um, and a lot of time when I was a kid, I think that was the only ice cream we had in the house, which is absurd to me. But like there were also the other thing is we never had butter, like real butter in my house, except on Pesach. Right. We only yes. ever had Fleischmann's margarine. 
And yep, like margarine. It did not. I didn't know from butter until I was like in my mid 20s. Like that is how long it was until I started cooking <laughs> with butter. And I grew up in the Midwest. Like there's no excuse for this. It's so weird. But yeah, like par of food. And the other thing is Zahava to your like, if you want ice cream, you should wait until you're milchik. I'm a vegetarian. I'm, I'm uh, as people like to say, a Jewish vegetarian. Like I am, uh, I eat things that are parav and things that are milchik. So I eat fish and I am a vegetarian because when I was eight, we had chicken for dinner on Friday night and I wanted ice cream for dessert. And I was told you can't because you're flashic. And I was like, well, I'm done being flashic. And like, that's wow. That's <laughs> like, now I'm just never, ever flashic. And it's great. Um, except that like sometimes like at things when, <laughs> When communal meals were a thing, um, at Thanksgiving, I would always like want milk in my coffee after dinner, which like I could do, but nobody else could. And that was like a weird thing. But I have as a result of being a vegetarian since I was eight, like I have a lot of experience with par of substitutions and I have many opinions on them. I would say like I spent many years eating those stupid Morningstar Farms black bean burgers and like they are not good, but they were also, like, fine. Right. They were at every Hillel cookout. Right. Exactly. If I never see one of those again, that will be fine. Like, I don't hate them, but they're just so not actually good. And they were so often presented to me as, like, here's your dinner that, like, if they all disappeared from this earth, I wouldn't cry about it. It is really amazing how far we've come from like the Boca burgers of yeah. my college years to beyond meat burgers or yeah. impossible meat. Yeah. It's Wait, like one more thing about when I was growing up, I just I'm trying to remember when they introduced this. I feel like I might have been in my teens. I feel like the the next revolution in non-dairy ice cream was when Trader Joe's started making the soy creamy ice cream. Was this a thing? where you guys okay so they had these tubs that were half and half and uh half would be mango sorbet and half would be vanilla ice cream that was soy based mm. or they had tubs that were like half vanilla and half um like black cherry with chocolate chunks all pariv and there was this like sudden dawning consensus that this was actually good and then everybody had them after meat shabbat meals for a while this is like a thing that happened in my late teens that sort of broke through around when trader joe's hit new jersey and became a thing so i feel like maybe this is pushing the conversation beyond where we wanted to go quite yet but one of the questions that I remember hearing raised around eating fake ice cream after a meat meal was, are we confusing people by giving them the impression that we're breaking kashrut and eating dairy after this meal? I do not know if this is apocryphal or not, but I've heard that when margarine started to be common, that they used to like serve margarine at fancy kosher events in the bot like in the wrapper still so that you could see that it was margarine and not butter so it would be like a fancy event but there would be like a stick of margarine still in the wrapper on the table because it was like 
we know you might be worried that this is butter, but it's not. You can see that it's margarine. And we need everybody to acknowledge that this is right. And like at a certain point, you don't need to do that anymore because everybody is now aware of Fleischmann's or whatever brand of their choosing. But like at the beginning, if you want people, if you like, if people are going to be worried that they are actually eating something that might be trafe, you like put a visual cue there to like help people know this is not what you might think it is. Well, that has, I mean, that has like long halachic roots. I think that, um, that I'm, I don't know how old this is, but there's a, a very old, um, concept that if you are serving almond milk, you should put a bowl of almonds next to the pitcher, like hmm. that you need a, a visual indication. I, I guess almond milk is one of sort of the earlier non-dairy substitutes that halachic texts could envision. And it is interesting to me how little we seem concerned about that now that, you know, mainstream kosher organizations are perfectly willing to put, you know, uh, uh, you know, star K pariv or whatever on beyond meat sausages without any big red letters that says must serve with package displayed or <laughs> um, you you can have this as part of, but don't put any cheese on it because you might induce people to believe that like chili cheese dogs are kosher. There's no there's no caveat language around how we do it now. And I think that you're right in what you were saying earlier, that a lot of this is because of the popularity of like all of the other people who have like essentially like Jews were the first ones who were like, I mean, not. Well, I guess you could make the argument. We were the first (laughs) ones with like real dietary restrictions. And like everybody else has been slowly jumping on the wagon that we have been carrying for thousands of years. And like in the past 25 years or so, like there's been a serious uptick with gluten free stuff, which doesn't particularly help Jews, although occasionally it ends up like for Pesach. It can be useful for some people. Non-dairy things, huge help. And I guess the kind of fake meat stuff, which I think comes from like a bunch of different places, like people who want to be vegan for like reasons of environmental concerns and people who want to be vegan for ethical reasons and um, people who want to eat vegetarian for health reasons. Like there's all kinds of reasons that people are doing these things now that they haven't before. And that has just made it a lot easier to find products that are different from what we expected for when we were growing up. I think the closest thing to, for me, to putting a bowl of almonds next to the almond milk is that there's certain things, certain gluten-free products that I just don't think are right for Passover. Like (laughs) for example, certain pastas that are made out of quinoa or pea, I don't, not even pea things. Um, I don't know. They're like all of these gluten-free pastas and chickpea pasta. I'm like, I just don't think we'll eat that on Passover, though it may technically not include any rice or corn or wheat. Um, it doesn't feel right. I mean, it also probably doesn't taste good. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that like the gluten-free stuff is interesting because there is some like good gluten-free stuff now, but there's also still a lot of gluten-free stuff that's like not not delicious. Not delicious yet. Um, or like delicious if you are grading on a pretty significant curve. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is, I mean, it's interesting because it makes me think of like, it used to be that like a par of kosher bakery cake was bad. 
And I think that's like not always true anymore. Like the game has been, the the bar has been raised significantly, but I think that like the gluten-free stuff is like 20 years behind. Like a Mm -hmm. gluten-free cake is still usually not very good. Um, With some exceptions, like there are people who are really good at it, but I think like we're not, at the gluten-free essence in terms of baked goods. We're not at the Im- impossible, what would it be? The impossible flour <laughs> or the beyond, yeah. uh, beyond wheat. <laughs> we, um, my partner once made gluten-free chocolate cookies to send to his sister who was um, eating gluten-free at the time. And our dog at the time got into them. And <laughs> our dog, who would eat, like, anything and famously, like, ate entire challahs, got open this box of gluten-free chocolate cookies and was basically, like, gluten-free chocolate? I <laughs> <laughs> just, like, left them all over the floor. Like, this dog would eat all kinds of disgusting things off the street, but, like, the gluten-free chocolate cookies, she was, like, no thanks. <laughs> And I've had some good gluten-free chocolate cookies, but she was not feeling this batch. One thing that is interesting to me from like a cultural shift is that with the rise of all of these other reasons to have food alternatives, it used to be that like kosher keepers were walking this funny line with things like tofuti products, right? Because on the one hand, it was a way of copying something that would otherwise be not kosher, whether it was like fake sour cream to use in a meat recipe, or whether it was, you know, a par of ice cream to eat right after a meat meal. It was like a way of sort of copying or accessing this non-kosher experience. At the same time, it was such a uniquely kosher keeping experience to do that, that it was like this weird bonding thing. Um, Like your average family down the street who wasn't keeping kosher would not have tofuti cuties in their freezer. (laughs) You know, it was it was just it was just, quote unquote, ours. And so it was like this weird line between is this actually a uniquely Jewish experience or is this a way of accessing the non-Jewish experience? And I feel like that's eroding, like the ability to get non-dairy milk at the regular supermarket instead of in a specialty kosher store, right? The ability, you know, like I used to do par of baking with like Rich's coffee whip. That was the only non-dairy milk available. And now you could just go to the supermarket and buy one of seven different kinds of non-dairy milks. I feel like in a weird way, it's um, diminishing the unique Jewishness of it. And Keeping kosher is such a line of demarcation in practice, right? It's like there's a reason that when when people are trying to categorize someone's observance, one of the things you'll hear is like, do they keep Shabbat? Do they keep kosher? It's like those are the big separators in a way because they're, they're ways in which it becomes almost impractical to live seamlessly with other people who don't keep that thing. It impedes like where you can sit and like in the dining hall in in an institutional setting it impedes like who can invite whom for what social event and when and etc cetera, etc cetera. It, it is like a it feels like a an intentional cultural separation like that may have been part of the purpose of the laws of kosher is to create that line of demarcation because it's it's such a prominent effect of it not that like all of these alternatives mean that as a kosher keeper, I can easily go to someone else's house and just be like, hey, I'm vegan like that. I mean, some people can. That happens not to be my kosher practice. But like 
it does mean that it's less of an intra-Jewish experience to create this thing together. Does that make sense? It does. But I'm also like our intra-Jewish experiences don't need to be based on crappy things. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> that is like we have this like weird complex of like it's bad, but it's ours. And it's like, OK, but if there's non bad versions, let's have that be ours. Like I it's also funny because it's like it's not like Jews have no other way of like spotting and connecting with other <laughs> Jews. You know, it's like you don't need to like go to someone's house, open their freezer and look for the tofuti cuties like <laughs> Are you seeing them at school? Are they wearing a kippah? Like there's like a million other ways to like bagel someone, if you will. And like, I don't know. I just find I, I hear you, but I'm also like, I don't need to bond with people over. Like, I am happy to bond with you all over like the crappy par of foods of our youth. But like, I don't need to like keep eating those crappy par of foods now that there's non crappy alternatives just to be like, this is what we do as Jews. Like, I already eat matzah for that reason. I don't need to eat <laughs> that. That can be enough. Dayenu. I think there's a an interesting conversation to be had as well about um, vegan restaurants and what the burgeoning vegan restaurant scene is doing to kosher restaurants. Um, I think uh, somebody who I really enjoy his thinking on this is Rabbi Michael Rosenberg, who talks about um, the kosher, how, how like only in kosher restaurants would you have like a pizza, sushi, falafel restaurant all in one. What? That sounds totally normal to me. What? It, it's yes. a very strange conglomeration. <laughs> it's totally of three, normal in kosher restaurants. <laughs> three very different kinds of foods in one restaurant. Um, but now, like, I don't know, in my neighborhood of Somerville, there are like three pretty great vegan restaurants. There's taco party, which I haven't been to because of COVID, but, um, you know, and you see them not filled with Jews, but you will always see a table of Jews at taco party. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what to say about that. I think it's a great thing that I can meet up with friends who eat kosher at not the sushi pizza, um, falafel restaurant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, that's a bigger crowd out problem as somebody who wouldn't go to a non-kosher supervised vegan place. It It's a bigger problem in smaller cities where vegan places are crowding out places that I can actually eat. Mm. Um, like that's a different problem. Um, but also there's like a whole other conversation to be had about what the kosher certifying establishment is willing to certify. A Vegan restaurant is like within a couple of hair's breadths of being kosher, right? Like there, there are a couple of things that you might need them to change and a couple of sort of technical supervisory steps that might need to be taken in order for me to be confident that I can eat there. And if you have um, a, a city agency of kosher supervisors or whatever the organization is or a local rabbi who's trusted to do that, like willing to sort of take on the modest technical challenge, but possibly larger political challenge of supervising a vegan restaurant, then there are so many more places that could be brought into the fold of accessibility for kosher keepers. And so it cuts both ways. Um, 
And it really, it really depends. I now live in a city where uh, kosher supervision is very, very heavily controlled by a single entity. This is not like an atypical thing for cities, but that happens to be true here. Um, and there aren't even any like rogue independent some people don't eat there, but you know, like there, there's no sort of rogue authorizers that have gone off on their own. Um, and it's, it's very culinarily limiting. And I'm like, there's gotta be some great vegetarian Indian places here that you could hechsher with like very minimal effort that I would love to go to, but nobody mm-hmm. has. It's interesting. The iron fist of the mashkichim in a lot of cities is a problem. Um, but perhaps for another segment, cause I have a lot to say about yes. that. Before we close this segment, though, let us go do a go round of our favorite fake product of our time. I will go first. Impossible meat. It is just delicious. I have no idea if it really tastes like beef, but you can cook it like beef in a way that is really awesome. And I love that that is just like easily available to me in the supermarket that's a 10 minute walk from my house like it's a game changer it's great so how about what do you have i've only had an impossible burger once and my feeling was this definitely gives me burger burger vibes but it also tastes like a mall food court smells like it gave (laughs) me not just burger vibes but Trafe burger vibes in a way that really threw me. Like I didn't know what to do with myself. Oh my god, that's amazing! You know, as a as a side point, Mimi, like apropos of your comment about like the quinoa pasta just doesn't feel right on Pesach. Like mm-hmm. um, my sister and brother in law now have weekly cheeseburger nights with Impossible Foods beef, mm-hmm. I think, or maybe with Beyond Meat, uh, which is the other option. I'm not sure, and like culturally what is that what does it mean for a kosher keeping family to have weekly cheeseburger nights i don't know it feels like such a leap anyway um i will say this is the boring answer but i will say that the availability of good non-dairy milk and especially i've been having a lot of oat milk hot chocolates recently i happen to also be getting progressively more lactose intolerant (laughs) with age i don't know why you know humans are weird for for myself, but also for baking. Like I said, I grew up with a lot of desserts based on Fleischmann's margarine and Rich's coffee whip as the dairy components. And there are just the options now are so much better. Actually, shout out to a product product that I haven't had a chance to try yet because it's not available in Canada. Has either of you had a chance to try the country crock plant butters? No. no. So this is like a new kind of margarine where this year they they came out or in 2020 i should say they came out with a line of plant butters where there was like an olive oil based one an almond oil based one an avocado oil based one there was like a variety of plant-based butter you know that it's like not part of the kosher thing if you call it butter instead of margarine right Right. um but anyway yes the non-dairy options that work for baking i would say have been the biggest factor for me I want to give a shout out. I don't actually know if there's a hexer on this because that doesn't matter for my kitchen currently, but Trader Joe's has a soy chorizo mm, um, that, is that is just really great in any soups. Um, we make a lot of chili with this Trader Joe's soy chorizo. It's got good crunch, good mouthfeel. <laughs> yep. I'll say my biggest categorical disappointment has been 
cheese, not yeah. like the spreadable cream cheese kind of cheese, but like anything that's really supposed to be a piece of cheese or shredded cheese. I apologize to the day of people or yeah. however that's supposed to be pronounced. But I think that you have had to be vegan for a long time to think that tastes like cheese. It doesn't melt, which is like half of what you want from cheese. Yep. And yeah, I think the fake cheese, like I will never, I will just be like, just leave it off. Like I don't want fake cheese. I love a fake meat. I'm often on board with, but fake cheese. No, I'm glad it exists for people for whom it is necessary. And like, yeah, the fake milks are fine. Um, but I'm, I, I just say no to fake cheese. Um, well, this was delightful and now I'm very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let us move along to our endorsements. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? I want to shout out two books. The first book is called Can't We Talk About Something Pleasant? It's by Roz. I think I'm saying this right. Is it Chast or Chaste? Sorry, Roz. Um, she is a New Yorker um, cartoonist. Or her work is often featured in The New Yorker. And Can't We Talk About Something Pleasant is a graphic novel about her experience um, with as her parents got older um, with their, basically with their aging. And as somebody who works with older adults and uh, has a mom who is getting older, um, I just, I found it laugh out loud hilarious, but also like really tugged at the heartstrings. And one of those books where... Um, the fact that it was a graphic novel added to the book wasn't just a um, sort of a quirk of it, but really added to the experience. The second book, I don't want to shout out, but I want to talk about with somebody. I just finished a book called Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. I thought it would be an interesting book to read on the in preparation for our conversation with Rabbi Minna um, about Fat Torah, but turned out to just be really confusing um, what it's trying to say about bodies and diet culture and religion. So if anybody out there has read Milk Fed, I'm looking to be in conversation with you. Those are my two openers. Awesome. Um, all right, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So this is actually a secondhand endorsement. It came to me via our editor, Daniel Zana. This is The Plot, The Secret Story of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion by Will Eisner. So this book uh, written by, I didn't know this, Will Eisner is a longtime comic book writer and apparently the literal originator of the genre of the graphic novel. And his final published work um, is a graphic novel about the history of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So after our last conversation about con anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, during that segment, I had said that part of it made me feel sort of undereducated about the history of anti-Semitism. And um, Daniel recommended that I check out this book, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, it's 
presented in graphic novel form specifically because so much of what's been written about the protocols has been in this by academics for academics sort of impen- impenetrable scholarly format. And uh, Eisner wanted to put out something as accessible as possible to a broad audience. And it really is. And I really didn't know. I think the thing that really jumped out at me was how recent the protocols are. Like mm. I had a sense that they were a much more, uh, a much older text that had been around for a long time. I did not realize that we're talking like just before before the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, it's like, um, isn't it 1890s? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, this is not something I knew much about. And it's just sort of, I had a sense of it as like the, everybody knows it's false anti-Semitic bogeyman and how much this is about that it's really the opposite. The fact that despite being proved false again and again and again, it's sort of this this unkillable zombie thing um, that actually is of much more recent vintage than I thought um, and has been relevant in so many sort of recent political moments. So it was a really uh, illuminating read. Um, it drags a little bit in the middle when there's a lot of side-by-side textual comparisons between the protocols and the work that they were heavily plagiarized from. Mm. Um, so like... I think that Eisner needs to spend a little time like proving the forgery case in a way that uh, like weighs down the lightness of the graphic novel format a little bit, but otherwise um, very easy to read and um, and definitely worthwhile if this is something you want to know more about. The second thing I'm just going to shout out is I'm going to go out on a real limb here and endorse something I haven't finished, <laughs> um, which is a memoir by Boris Fishman called Savage Feast, a memoir with recipes. Subtitle, Three Generations, Two Continents, and a Dinner Table. And um, this is about uh, a family, and specifically the the son of a family, Boris, who um, came from the Soviet Union, left left the Soviet Union in 1988 when he was, I think, eight or nine years old. Um, it's very heavily informed by memories of cooking and food um, and sort of the the vividness of, of food to Jewish culture in the Soviet Union and in preserving the family culture post-Soviet Union. Um, but I think this is the first extremely Jewish thing I have ever read that talks so casually about eating pork and shrimp. Hmm. Um, just because to a lot of Russian Jews and certainly to the Fishman family, um, Jewishness is almost exclusively an ethnic identity. It is not a religious identity. It is sort of only a cultural identity by dint of exclusion. It's very heavily an ethnic identity. Um, there's open scorn for religious practice among his, uh, you know, parents and grandparents. Um, and just like, it's full of recipes, including many that are like crazy off the charts, trafe. Um, <laughs> like, Unparavable. Like I, I, I have yet to see the uh, the kosher shrimp substitute that will truly that will truly address this problem. Um, so, but it's really vividly done. It's really accessible. It's giving me an interesting view into the um, the Russian side of my in law family and just getting a sense of um, of what the home culture might have been like. And just um, so, like I said, I'm like halfway through it. So this is a little bit out on a limb, but I'm enjoying it so far. Savage Feast by Boris Fishman. Awesome. I have uh, three endorsements, but I think two of them might be re-endorsements. <laughs> so the one that I'm sure is fresh is a podcast called Maintenance Phase. And um, it is about um, fad diets and diet culture and fat phobia and 
Um, it's great. Uh, one of the co-hosts is Michael Hobbs, who you might know from the podcast you're wrong about. Um, and they have done like really awesome episodes on the presidential physical fitness test. Um, and uh, recently they did a really great one on, um, oh, what was that? The, the Biggest Loser. Um, and yeah, so if you are like just at the beginning of like starting to think about um, fat phobia, this is a great podcast to just like inform yourself. It's very fun to listen to. Like it's not depressing. It's really interesting um, and uh, very has a skeptical eye towards a lot of the kind of like problematic fat phobia and fat diet stuff. So maintenance phase is a podcast. Okay. Uh, I think that last month Mimi endorsed this book, uh, which is called the rabbi who prayed with fire by, uh, Rachel Sharona Lewis. Is that right? You endorsed it last month. I didn't endorse it. We talked about it offline, but okay, great. So this isn't a redo. Um, this book is like created in a lab for me. It is about a, um, a uh, woman conservative rabbi who has to solve a mystery. She's also queer. There's a love interest. There's stuff about Black Lives Matter and anti-Semitism and like old congregants who want everything to be about the Holocaust and like shul politics, rabbi politics. Like it is ugh, chef's kiss. I read almost I've I've about like 20 more pages Um, I read most of it over Shabbat and I was like, I need everyone I know (laughs) to read this so we can all discuss. Um, Also, it seems to be perhaps like the first of a series, which is very exciting to me because I want there to be more. Um, Rachie Lewis, who wrote it, I have like a lot of mutual friends with her and I've definitely like been in a room that she's been in, but I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with her. You should totally buy this book. It's like a great like reading over Yandif book. It's just a delight. And um, I... Like the only thing I don't like about it is that I didn't write it. <laughs> um, so, so that is uh, my second endorsement. And my third endorsement is um, the Pesach list from kashrut.org, which I think I did endorse last year, but I want everybody to know about again. Basically, kashrut.org, which bills itself as something hilarious, like an objective view of Kashrut or something ridiculous like that. Kashrut will never be objective, but anyways, it's called an objective outlook on Kashrut issues. Whatever. Here's what they do. They have their specific approach to Kashrut and Halakha, and they put out a list before Pesach of like products you can find at a supermarket that do not need a cave for pee if you buy them before Pesach because of Batul Bashishim. If everything that I'm saying doesn't make any sense to you, then you can just skip past this. But if you care about kosher for Pesach products and you are annoyed about the amount of money that you um, are spending and you are con- willing to look into kashrut.org and see if they uphold your standards, like this list is like, it's basically like Tanakh, Gemara, Kashrut.org, Baisach list, in my view. <laughs> like, that's, that's like my canon. Um, <laughs> and there's like Trader Joe's products on it. The biggest thing is we eat um, kidney oat at my house. And if you eat kidney oat, you can just buy corn checks before Pesach 
and you can eat corn checks, regular cereal on Pesach. It is life changing. It's incredible. You can make Muddy Buddies to eat mm. on Pesach. We have Muddy Buddies on ice, like Briar's ice cream for dessert on Pesach. And like, you know what? That is liberation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways, you should go there. You can download the list for free, but you should give them a donation because they are doing this extremely important holy work in order to allow us to eat checks on Pesach. So uh, yeah, kashrut.org. Believe it. Do it. Accept it into your heart. I'm excited to spread the gospel. <laughs> I have no idea who these rabbis are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was quite the spree for me, but I guess I'm really excited about a lot of things. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you'd have a minute, it would be great for you to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. We're always looking for ideas. You can leave a comment on a post um, on our Facebook page. Search for Jewish Public Media to find us on Facebook or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and ensure that we can bring you new episodes every month. A special thank you to Daniel Zana. It's been such a delight to talk to you two this month. Thank you so much, Mimi. Talk to you later. Thank you, Zahava. Thank you. And I will see you next month.